grab it. Uh, we're in the book of Daniel this morning, if you want to turn there. And uh, if you're visiting this morning, uh, we've been working through the book of Daniel this summer, and so uh, we're actually coming to the final chapter, uh, chapter 12. And so I'm going to start out this morning doing a little summary of the book. Actually, it ends up becoming kind of a lesson in eschatology. Does anyone remember what that is? Or have you ever heard what that is? It's the study of the end times. I had a man come up to me last week and said, I took this in college and it didn't make as much sense as you just made in 10 minutes. So you're going to get a eschatology. It's too big of a word. You're going to get a 10-minute overview of the end times. What's going on in the world today? I think we have a lot of questions. There's a lot of unrest, uh, a lot of what feels like a, a lawlessness or, or whatever you might feel in the, in the culture today. And of course, it talks about that in the Bible. And we are moving toward an end. The Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things the book of Daniel does is it gives us several metaphors, visions, pictures of, of the end time. So let me start in the beginning of the book and we're just going to do a quick overview, bring you up to uh, chapter 12 here where really it really focuses on uh, Jesus uh, coming back. So the first six chapters are really historical in the book of Daniel, uh, how God took care of the nation of Israel while they were captives in the foreign land of, of Babylon. And if you remember with me, uh, God raised up Daniel, of course, who writes the, the book, but also three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? And it's amazing. God gives them more wisdom than all of the wise men of Babylon. Now, I, I don't want to discredit these men. They were very sincere. They were seekers. Uh, the Bible describes them, some of them as enchanters, so apparently they had some kind of chanting uh, prayer life, uh, some of them musicians, it refers to them, some astrologers, so they're looking for meaning in the stars. A, a variety of different ways people in their culture was seeking truth outside of the physical realm. And I think we would all agree that there are people seeking spiritual answers and spiritual truth in, in the day we live. What's interesting is God raised up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and gave them more wisdom and more insight uh, than all of the wise men of Babylon. They had more moral integrity and more moral courage. They stood for things they believed in about God. And God was with them over and over again. In Daniel chapter 2, you remember how uh, God gave Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He would ask his wise man, you tell me my dream and then interpret it and I'll know you have an answer. And none of them could do it. But God gave the dream to Daniel and gave him the meaning of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar was amazed at the wisdom and the power of Daniel's God. In fact, he sent out an edict to all of his nation to reverence and honor the God of Daniel. He has more wisdom, more power than all the other gods of the nation. That was Daniel 2. Daniel 3 
God protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace. And you remember, they wouldn't bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar made, and God kept them safe, even though uh, Nebuchadnezzar had the, had the furnace heated up seven times hotter than normal to the point where he could literally see through the metal and see that inside the furnace there was a fourth man walking with them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we really believe Jesus Christ was with them through the fire, protected them and kept them safe. When they came out, their hair wasn't singed, their clothes weren't burned, and Nebuchadnezzar, another order sent out to the nation, who's like the God of Daniel? And who can rescue like this God? And so we see uh, here in the Old Testament in a foreign land how God continued to provide and protect for the nation of Israel because they trusted in him. Daniel 5, uh, Daniel was able to give the interpretation to the handwriting on the wall, signs of the times, so to speak. And boy, we're going through a day right now where people are saying, what is happening? What are the signs of, of the time? We'll talk about that a little bit. In Daniel 6, of course, Daniel was saved from the lion's den. So we see these amazing miracles over a period of about 60 years where God protected uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all the nation of Israel, basically giving them honor and respect among the people uh, as they lived in a foreign land. Three times, actually, an edict was sent out telling people to honor the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, every time they did, it said, there's no other God and all of heaven, and all of, and all of earth, uh, like this God. So that's what we see in the first six chapters. The second six chapters are, are really uh, the prophetic portion of this book. Uh, God uh, reveals visions to Daniel about things that were to come in the history of the world. From the time of Daniel in Babylon until the time uh, that's ahead for us, where we talk about a, a tribulation period, where we talk about an antichrist. I think all of us know there is a resistance, or let's just call it what John calls it, the spirit of the antichrist that's at work in the world today. There's a resistance to the person and the message of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says one day a man... <laughs> A man of lawlessness will be raised up as the Antichrist, that he'll be a wicked ruler, and there will be a tremendous persecution, of course, against the church and the people of Israel at that time. And Daniel, of course, when he receives this, these visions, it's because he's been praying, asking God, God, what is happening with the people of Israel? What is going to happen in the future? And we we see that Daniel, of course, is a man of prayer. Uh, there's times where he was praying for as many as 21 days, praying and fasting. God, what is going to happen with the future of Israel? How many remember the promises that God gave the nation of Israel? God gave Abraham a promise. He wasn't able to have kids, but God started a nation through him said that they would be a great nation and he would give them a land. In fact, told them every place on what the sole of your foot shall tread, I will give it to you. And so he had him walk through this land. And it literally was a physical land that he was going to give uh, the, the nation of Israel. And so Daniel is thinking about those promises and thinking, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fulfill it? 
and he's thinking about uh, what Jeremiah said. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied during the time of Daniel. And Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Some are familiar with this verse. Here's what the Lord says. During this time of tremendous darkness and suffering in the people of Israel's life, this is what the Lord said in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And so Daniel is saying, God, how, how are you going to do all this? How are you going to fulfill all these things? And so he has four different visions. Uh, actually, one is in Daniel chapter 2, and then the next one in Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel 9, and, and then one carries from Daniel 10 through the uh, end of the book. One of my favorite pictures uh, is in Daniel chapter 2. And I don't know if any of you are, are history buffs here this morning, uh, but God in Daniel chapter 2 gives Daniel a glimpse of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember the dream? He saw a statue of a man with a golden head, a chest of silver, arms of silver, a belly of bronze, thighs of bronze, and legs of iron and clay. And the angel said to Daniel, these are kingdoms that will come, starting with Babylon, the head of gold, the greatest kingdom ever in the history of the world, most wealthy, largest, and of course Nebuchadnezzar was the king during that time. And basically said it'll be followed by a lesser kingdom, silver, a chest, and, and arms of silver. Uh, we know from history that was the Medo-Persian Empire. They conquered the Babylonians uh, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And following that kingdom would be the belly and thighs of bronze. We know after the Medo-Persian Empire uh, that, that that would be Greece. How many remember Alexander the Great? Okay, we've had a little bit of history. It's interesting, in one of the visions God gave uh, Daniel, uh, <clears throat> the kingdom of Greece, suddenly this picture of a leopard symbolized the kingdom of Greece. All of a sudden, it had four heads or four rulers. What was that all about? Well, uh, history tells us that uh, Alexander the Great died suddenly at age 32. Their kingdom was like a leopard. It was swift. It was fast. They were the most brilliant military kingdom ever in the history of the world. He had four generals that were brilliant military tacticians. And when he died, they gave those four uh, generals leadership of the kingdom. Those are the four heads. <clears throat> What's interesting is that God told Daniel these things hundreds of years before they'd happened. And yet they are fulfilled, and we see that in Scripture. Uh, the next kingdom was uh, iron legs, remember, and iron feet mixed with clay, and we know that to be uh, the kingdom of Rome that ruled the world during the time when Jesus was born. It's interesting, the picture that God gave Daniel is that during the time that that kingdom ruled, the kingdom of Rome, there would be a rock cut out of a mountain made without human hands and he would crush all the kingdoms of the world that they would become like chaff on a threshing floor and the wind would blow them away who's the rock jesus christ cut out of a mountain without hands he was born of a virgin jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
And through his death and resurrection, he began establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And it starts in our hearts. We get to experience the peace, the joy, the love of God, the love of his kingdom in our hearts. And by the way, it's a kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever. There's a verse in uh, 1 Peter that says, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's a time when every kingdom will be gone and all the splendor of every kingdom. I, I know when you, if you've ever had a chance to watch anything on YouTube or travel, see other countries, go to Dubai and just see the amazing architecture of that city. Such a wealthy nation. You know in Dubai, the average income is $7 million a year. Yeah. Wealthiest nation in the world, of course, because of the oil that's there. Can you imagine only making a mere $7 mil <clears throat> a year? But anyway... All of this earth, all of the glory of the kingdoms of this world are going to pass away. But there is a king and a kingdom that's going to last forever. And of course, that was prophesied 500 years before Jesus came. Just amazing the clarity of these prophecies. There's a prophecy about Jesus coming in uh, Daniel chapter 9. And he uses, <clears throat> excuse me, he uses pictures of a puzzle. Uh, the angel basically says there's going to be groups of seven, seven years. There's going to be seven sevens, and then there's going to be 62 sevens, and then there's going to be one seven. And all of these groups of seven years have to do with the nation of Israel. So he says from the time the command is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, I don't know if you know in history that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed right before they were taken into Babylon. But 70 years later, command was given to rebuild the city. Uh, it took place in probably April or May of uh, 536 B.C. A man named Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah in chapter 2 the command to go and rebuild the city along with all the resources that were necessary. Well, he rebuilt the walls in 53 days, but it took about 49 years or seven sevens to rebuild the entire city. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, sorry about the history lesson here, but it's such a great book of the Bible, and, 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 it, and it says so many things. One of the things that helps us see is because God is able to prophesy things that will happen in the future. It says in the book of Psalms, there's no other God like him. No other God can tell us what's going to happen in the future and then bring it to pass. And yet there are people that deny the authority and accuracy of God's word. In, in Daniel chapter 9, there'll be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. If you come up with 69 sevens, you'll come up with about 483 years. At least that's what my scratch paper said when I was working on my notes, okay? If you count forward from when the order was given to rebuild the city, 483 years. Historians say that was about March 14th, 32 AD, the time when Jesus rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Seven sevens and 62 sevens, an anointed one will come. And remember when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus rode into Jerusalem. What it says in Daniel chapter 9, it says he would be killed in Jerusalem as though his life meant nothing. And that's what's happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. We all know that. A week after he rode into the city, he was crucified. And the world around us, to them, his life meant nothing. I mean, some people believe he existed. Some people say Jesus was a good man, a good moral teacher. But it's as though his life meant nothing. (laughs) How many know his life means everything? (laughs) There's salvation in no one else, it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. His life means everything. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that was all prophesied in the book of Daniel uh, 500 years before it happened. After that period of time, book of Daniel talks about a period where there will be difficulty, where there'll be wars and rumors of wars, where there'll be pestilence, where there'll be earthquakes. But during that time, the kingdom of God would advance on the earth. And Jesus, of course, talked about that. We're familiar with those phrases from Matthew chapter 24. How in the last days, there would be all these difficulties and trials. And and the goal is so that every nation, every tribe, and every tongue would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's the day we're living in today I know some people say where's Jesus I mean he promised he'd return when's he coming back and it's as though they mock the authority of God's word we're going to see in chapter 12 Jesus himself solemnly swears I'm returning just as I said And so uh, we know all these things that are happening in history are building up to a time when there's going to be tribulation on the earth. Jesus calls it the great tribulation, a time when there's going to be a tribulation. It's the last seven. Remember the puzzle in Deuteronomy chapter 9? It's the last seven years, a period of seven years of tribulation where there'll be persecution against the church and hardship against the church. There's a statement that Jesus makes. It talks about the abomination that causes desolation and Daniel's going to make the same one here in Daniel chapter 12. It's interesting, Jesus quotes Daniel when he says that. But in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, the Antichrist, who becomes ruler of the world by promising peace and leading the worlds toward peace. How many think our world is looking for peace at all costs right now? They would sell their soul for peace. And I mean that literally. They would sell their soul for peace. We want peace at all costs. There is one who's coming... He is the anti-Christ who will bring peace in an an amazing way. Of course, it's set up by Satan. He's going to bring a false sense of peace. He's going to bring economic recovery for the world and establish a one-world government and a one-world economic system. Uh, It's going to be a digital economic system. How many think we're not far away from that, where it's cashless? We don't ever use cash. It's all digital. And we're moving that direction already in our world. And it's through this digital system where if you don't have the mark, 
The Bible talks about the mark of the beast in, in, in Revelation. If you don't have the mark on your forehead or on your wrist, you won't be able to buy or sell. You know, 40 years ago, <laughs> 45 years ago, <clears throat> dating myself here, when I got saved in college 45 years ago, and I heard people talk about a cashless society, I mean, that seemed like, are you kidding me? That's crazy. How many of you ever use cash today? I don't even use cash on Starbucks, you know? I just click, just give them my phone. We're so far ahead of where we thought we'd be. It's only been 45 years. Wouldn't it be easy for someone to control the banking systems of the world? Just take control? So, um, by the way, I'm not encouraging you to take all your money out of the bank. <laughs> okay, that's not my point. My point is not to scare you. The purpose of prophecy is not to scare us. It's to prepare us and help us be wise in the day we live and understand that there's something subtle happening behind the scenes that is moving us toward a moment in history of tremendous persecution against the church and the Jewish people. And in the middle of that tribulation, that Antichrist talks about this in several places in the scripture. That Antichrist will remove the sacrificial system, the altar from, from uh, the, the holy place in Jerusalem and set up an image of himself. In fact, in, in 2 Thessalonians, it said he will sit on a throne in the holy place uh, in, in, in Israel and demand to be worshipped by the whole world. Now, when that happens, okay, the Jews are not falling for that. Okay, and as a result of that, a huge persecution and the killing of the Jewish people. That's the abomination that causes desolation that will take place midway through the tribulation. And then the prophecies in the New Testament say, after three and a half years, the second coming. Jesus is coming back. So the tribulation starts with the coming of the Antichrist, and it ends with the coming of Jesus Christ. Could someone say hallelujah to that? <laughs> Starting with the Antichrist, coming with Jesus Christ. Some of us, some of us believe that the Antichrist himself cannot be raised up in history until the church is taken out of the way. Because there's a verse in 2 Thessalonians that says, we know he's coming, but we also know that he will not be able to be raised up until the one who is holding him back is taken out of the way. And many people believe the one who's holding him back is the Holy Spirit in the life of his church. And so, before the tribulation, this is what I'm hoping for, and I know some of you are mid-trib, and some of you are post-trib, and some of us are pan-trib. You know, it's all going to pan out. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens. And I know we're all in different places. I'm going for the pre-trib. I'm out of here. You can have the tribulation if you want it okay <laughs> I got a married supper of the lamb to go to so uh, uh, anyway uh, many believe that we'll be raptured first then the tribulation and then we'll return with Jesus at his second coming and there's lots of support for that uh, in the book of Revelation um, boy so many chapters chapter 7 chapter 13 chapter 19 through the end of the book you can read about all of that. Now, that is as fast as I can give you eschatology of the Bible in times in 10 minutes, okay? Uh, but it's, the foundation of all of it is here in the book of Daniel. 
That's what's amazing. It's a fascinating book. Now let's talk a little bit about the end when Jesus returns. I'm going to start reading in Daniel 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, at that time, at the end, at that time, Michael, the archangel, who we talked about last week, remember the, the prefix arch is chief. Michael is chief angel over the nation of Israel. At that time, Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, he's talking to Daniel, his nation is Israel, the archangel who stands guard over your nation will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. Can you imagine the Holocaust and the anguish for the Jewish people during that time, World War II? This period will be an anguish greater than any other since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book, some of you have read it in Revelations, the book of life, everyone whose name is written in the book will be rescued. The second coming is about Jesus rescuing his people from the tribulation they're going through. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting disgrace. So there is a judgment at the second coming. Verse 3, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end and when, when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. Let me stop for a minute. I don't know if you've heard anyone teach or preach out of that verse. Oftentimes there's a reference just to the busyness of the lives we live, the amount of travel that we do before COVID. You know, millions of flights, planes every day. You look at the highway Los Angeles we are a people who are rushing here and there all the time and of course we live in the information age I mean, if you want to know anything you just google it right a time when knowledge will increase so I've heard some great messages making application from that verse about those kind of things simply about the culture that we're living in today the activity the rushing here and there, the pursuit of knowledge. And I think that's great application. I just don't think that is really what this is all about. This verse is actually a quote from the book of Amos. And in Amos, it talks about end times, when people will rush to and fro looking for answers. There'll be so much trouble, so much confusion, so much unrest. People will be looking everywhere for answers. And there will be lots of ideas and lots of solutions. The problem is they don't really solve the problem. <laughs> the problem is people won't look to God for the answers. So we'll come up with all kinds of things that are good, they're well-meaning, lots of heart and passion behind them, you know, things about climate change, which I think we all should be concerned about. Uh, I'm not saying you, we shouldn't be concerned, especially if you're a younger person. If Jesus tarries, we should care about the planet. Could someone say amen to that? 
I just don't know if it's the answer. I think we're looking to lots of solutions, but we're unwilling to look to God. We're unwilling to turn to Jesus Christ. How many believe he is the answer? He is the answer. And, you know, I'll respect the good intentions of every person looking to help mankind and help people. But without looking to God, we'll never find the solution because Jesus is the answer we're needing uh, in the day we lived. And because of that, it goes on to, to say how the words of this prophecy are sealed up. People can't see it. They don't understand it. The Bible says that minds of unbelievers are blinded to the truth about the gospel. Jesus said it this way. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Not everyone is willing to hear. You have to be willing to repent. You have to be willing to turn to God. You have to be willing to admit that you're wrong, that you don't have the answer. Humanism is not the answer. We're not going to fix it through human effort or human will. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And it would be okay if you said amen right there. <laughs> we need a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Let me begin reading verse 5. We'll work down through the end of the book. Then I, Daniel, looked and saw two others standing on opposite banks of the river. One of them asked the man dressed in linen, uh, who was now standing above the river, how long will it be until these shocking events are over? The man dressed in linen, who was standing by the river, raised both his hands toward heaven and took a solemn oath by the one who lives forever, saying, it will go on for a time, times, and a half time, when the shattering or the brokenness, some of your translations say, of the holy people has finally come to an end, all these things will have happened. Now, last week, we talked about the man in linen. Does anyone remember who he is? Daniel chapter 10. The man in linen was Jesus, remember? He had a golden, pure gold belt around his waist. His face shone like lightning. His eyes like fire, the passion in his soul, purity passion and authority his voice was like a multitude uh, speaking at the same time here's a picture of Jesus raising both hands and making a solemn, solemn oath to the one who lives forever who's that of course it's God so God is making an oath by his own name here in these verses and basically what he's doing is he's promising these things will happen. They will come to an end. Now, why is that important? Because I know we live at a time where people said, well, if Jesus come back, where is he? And there's certain people who allow that to erode their faith in the Bible. How do we know it's true? It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, God is not slow concerning his promises but wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the reason God is being patient. It's his love. But in this verse, we see Jesus raising both hands. Now, this is interesting because in the book of Deuteronomy, God swears by himself. He makes a promise and he raises one hand. And here in Daniel, 
when he talks about the second coming and the end of all things, Jesus raises both hands in solemn oath to the one who lives forever. You cannot make a stronger promise than that. God swearing by himself, these things will happen. Verse 11, from the time the daily sacrifice is stopped and the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Some of your translations say the abomination that causes desecration or some say desolation is set up to be worshipped. There will be 1,290 days, about three and a half years. Blessed are those who wait and remain until the end 1,335 days. I'll let you try to figure that one out. Some people believe it's uh, forecasting the millennium that will come after that, but that's a whole nother message. Verse 13, as for you, uh, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise again to receive your inheritance set aside for you. How many believe Jesus could come back in your lifetime? Yeah. Jesus could come back in our lifetime. I, I remember a time when I was sitting at a stop sign, and um, Actually, I, uh, I was waiting at that time in my life, hoping to have the opportunity to work as a pastor. I was 20, maybe about 25 years old. And one morning, not knowing that anyone knew I even existed or where I was at that particular time, one morning, a friend who was on the pastoral staff of this church where I was attending, he said, would you like to be a pastor with... Uh, uh, he said his name. His name was Cliff Haynes. He was pastoring up in Olympia, Washington. Fastest growing four-square church in the world at that time. Uh, young pastor. What an amazing opportunity. He said, would you like to go? And I'm sitting at the stop sign after that had happened. No one knew where I was. I mean, no one knew I was hoping and dreaming and praying and waiting for an opportunity to be a pastor. And I got a phone call. Just out of the blue. So I'm sitting at this stop sign just thinking about that and it was like the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what the second coming will be like. In a moment, all of a sudden, Jesus will return and he will be here. I, I don't know whether it'll happen in my lifetime. I'm not sure that's what the Holy Spirit was saying, but I do know he was saying to be ready. And I don't know what that feels like to you. I think some people, when it comes to the second coming, they're kind of afraid. You know, we all have a tendency to be afraid of God because of guilt and shame. I don't know about you, I do. When I first think of Jesus coming back, I want to think about all my sin, which would take most of the rest of the day. I could sure use an amen on that because, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need help, don't we? We need hope. Okay, Please read 1 John chapter 4 because it talks about the love of God, that God is love. And it talks about how perfect love casts out all fear. And then it says, because fear is involved with punishment. And how many know Jesus took our punishment on the cross? Hallelujah. He took our punishment. And because he was punished for us, because of the wrath of God poured out on him, I don't have to be afraid of punishment anymore. Can someone say, hallelujah? What I need to do is simply turn to Christ and say, thank you. 
I need to open up my heart to him and receive the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't have to be afraid. So, because of that, the second coming gets exciting. The second coming, I start being anxious to meet him, this one who loves me so much. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I get excited about meeting him, seeing him, looking into his eyes, and knowing him. The Bible says that when we see him, we'll, know, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he really is. And we start looking forward to that day when we'll see Jesus like that. And I'm so excited about that. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Martin Luther, but a great reformer of the church back in the 1600s. He said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day the one where Jesus is returning, and he lived looking forward to Jesus' return. D.L. Moody, some of you might have heard of him, great evangelist in the late 1800s in the New England area. Someone asked him, how would you spend your last day on earth if you knew Jesus was coming back? His response, I wouldn't do anything different like I do any other day. In other words, I'm living as though Jesus is coming back today. What? peace what joy to simply live as though Jesus is coming back in the meantime Jesus is coming back but in the meantime we have a job to do we have work to do it says in Daniel 12 verse 3 it says those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. I'm going to invite Philip Perkins to come up and share with us this morning. Uh, he just got back from a mission trip to Brazil. Uh, he's done his little stint of quarantine, and uh, some great things happened while he was there. Do you want to use this, or you do? Okay, great. I'll get out of your way. Would you welcome him this morning with me? Good morning, church. It's great to see your faces. This is my first time back inside here in quite a while. So I'm going to share a little bit about my trip in Brazil, but first I'd like to read a scripture from the end of Mark. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. He speaks to his disciples and says, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So about a month ago, I left for Brazil with a team of uh, six uh, people from the church I grew up in. We flew to the northern part of Brazil in the Amazon Basin, and we traveled with some church planters there, Brazilian church planters, on a houseboat for about 10 days, visiting river villages along the Amazon River. It was a really incredible trip, such a different culture, a beautiful culture, hospitable people, um, and we just got to see God do a lot of wonderful things. So one afternoon is kind of a sample of what our trip was like. Uh, we 
visited one village, did some house visits there, and then we took a truck into the jungle. After about half an hour driving, we stopped at an older woman's home. She lived there and was a part of a local church there in the jungle. And she had a lot of pain in her feet. She could hardly bend her toes or walk because of the pain. She asked us to pray for her. So, you know, we did what this says here, right? They will put their hands on sick people and they will get well. Uh, we felt the Holy Spirit lead us to kiss her feet and to wash her feet. So we did that. And after we prayed, she got up to test out how it felt. She was bending her toes and walking around and had no pain at all. Because Jesus is good and he loves people. We continued driving into the jungle and we visited another family. This family, about 10 or 12 people lived in one house. A mother and father and their kids and their grandkids all lived together. Their house had burned down twice, and then the local church had rallied together and built them a new house out of brick last year. And through that process, the mother and father of this family came to know Jesus, but none of their adult children knew the Lord at this point. So we took about half an hour and we shared the gospel with them. We talked about Jesus and his promise of eternal life, how there's a need to be born again of the Spirit and made new inside, how that adoption into God's family is free comes with forgiveness. Um, and these adult children uh, prayed with us to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Uh, and then we prayed for the father of the family who had a lot of pain in his back. Uh, he had trouble working on their farm. The first time we prayed, I thought I prayed a really eloquent prayer in Portuguese. I'd been practicing my Portuguese, which is the language they speak there. Uh, sometimes we think God's power depends on our abilities but it doesn't. And sometimes God reminds me of that by not responding when I'm relying on myself. First time we prayed, nothing at all happened. Uh, and then we prayed again. We just prayed earnest in our compassion uh, for his healing. The second time we prayed, he tested it out just like the first time, and then stood up, stood up, bent down, moved all around, and got really happy because all his pain in his back was gone. Similarly, we prayed for his son. Actually, I didn't, but we asked the father to pray for his own son, and his shoulder problems and pain were healed as well. This is an example of what Jesus talks about here, that the Lord worked with them to confirm the gospel by the signs that accompanied it. Uh, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who walked Israel and healed the sick and proclaimed the kingdom is canoeing to villages in the Amazon basin through his church proclaiming the kingdom and healing the sick. And that's the same Jesus that we walk with, who desires to heal people and bring people into the kingdom here today. I want to close with a um, scripture from Colossians. This is uh, Paul writing to his friends in Colossae. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. And as my church family, I just want to encourage you today that from the first day it was preached until now, the gospel is still bearing fruit and growing throughout the world as God is at work. Amen. Thank you, Philip. It's awesome. Awesome. Give me your Bible here. All right. Isn't that good? 
God is still at work. I think we all know God's mission is not on hold because of the coronavirus. <laughs> He's still at work in the world today, and because of that, we shouldn't be on hold. We should be praying. We should be loving. We should be sharing our faith. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Let me read it again. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. What does it take to be wise? Well, the Bible says uh, the reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. And, and, and the Bible says in uh, Psalms 53, verse 1, it says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, so the beginning of wisdom is to turn to Christ, to put your faith in Jesus, and, and to look to God. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up and... Uh, I just want to close here this morning. Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? You know, I know many of us know about Jesus. We've experienced uh, church a little bit. We have a little bit of education. Have you had a revelation in the sense that you know Jesus is real, that he loves you personally, that he died on the cross for you personally. What a difference that makes in your life because all of a sudden, the God who created everything becomes real to you. When you meet Jesus, it changes everything. And I want to encourage you that you can meet him today. If you've still got questions, I'd be glad to meet with you, talk with you. There are people in our church who would love to do that. But once you know Jesus, you know you've got the answer. You don't have all the answers, but you have the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to invite us to stand here this morning. I'm going to say a little prayer. I'm going to invite you to make it your prayer here this morning. This may not be the words that you'd use. But basically, what you're saying is, God, more than knowing about you, I want to know you. I want to know you, Jesus, as Lord and as Savior in my life. I really want to know you. And I just want to encourage you to begin to seek him, not, not just learning more about the Bible, but seeking the person of Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love today, Jesus. I want to thank you for dying on the cross. Lord, the first time you came, you came as a lamb to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But you're coming back again as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, with a sense of urgency, I pray for every person here this morning to make that decision to turn to Jesus, the person, to give their life to Jesus. And if that's you this morning, he sees your heart and he knows your prayer. He knows your prayer. You're crying out to him, Jesus, come into my life, Lord. Forgive my sin. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Lord, I want to thank you that you hear our prayers. You receive our prayers here this morning. Thank you for your love and your presence here this morning. Lord, thank you for comforting and encouraging us during a very confusing time. Lord, pray that you'd help us just put our hope and our faith and our trust in you. We give you praise and glory. Uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. And would you say amen with me? Amen. Let's sing this chorus one more time before we. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise.